Lord, what a privilege it is to gather on this day where we remember, remember our story as Anglican Christians and that we have great role models that stood firm when it truly, truly mattered. And Lord, I pray that this story that we relive would encourage each and every one of us in our own little cubicles of the world and that as we walk faithfully with you, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we would see a modern reformation in our day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I bring you greetings, dear friends, from Bishop Jackson and the deans of the Great Lakes Diocese. I spent the week with the bishop as we just revisioned about what the Great Lakes Diocese is going to be because we've got our challenges stretched from Ontario to western New York, across Ohio to Indiana, up to Michigan, down to Kentucky. And so we've had our challenges that we had to address and we were led by this visioning and, and just kind of working through a new vision for the diocese uh, by Bishop Bill Murdoch, who's going to be retiring as the Bishop of New England. Bill Murdoch is a great man, a huge Red Sox fan, unfortunately. <laughs> three to one, man. They're up three games to one. Why can't they lose? Um, but um, it, it's, we're instituting some new structures in the diocese, and I have the privilege of being appointed the dean of the Cleveland Deanery. That's an ancient word. That just means area of Anglican churches, that's all that word means, but it's important that we recapture the, the heart of what that meant for us because it's back borrowed from the Middle Ages. And so I represent and represent the bishop to these churches as well as represent these churches to the bishop and the rest of the diocese. So our deanery stretches from the far western edges of our deanery, which is here in Avon Lake, where Christ Church, all the way to St. Anne's Madison, and those are the only two parishes of our deanery, meaning these are churches that are 100 or above with self-sustaining budgets and they can support the clergy. So there we have four missions in the diocese, Lakewood, St. Stephen's in Cleveland, Transfiguration Cleveland, and there's another one, Bob, I forgot it, okay? Anyway, um, and then um, there's Bread of Life in Painesville, which is what we call a fellowship. It's less than 12. And what they're trying to do there is have an outreach to a, a housing project, a Johnson administration housing project, because those people are worthy of receiving the gospel. And Jim Burgess has a heart for them. It's a struggle, but he's a faithful bus driver, you know, priest. And so it's neat to see. So that's our deanery. And I'm the dean, which means what? Well, it means that not only am I the representative now, henceforth, I've been given quite a bit of authority. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, interesting. I can do almost everything in, among our churches that the bishop can do except ordinations and uh, consecrations and things. And the bishop will call on me to do these things um, at times, as well as my ministry here at Christchurch, to the clergy and their families and, and pastoral situations, which the bishop can't get to, all right? It also means that I have great say in what goes on in our deanery, which I am greatly appreciative of, because those of you who have been with me for 11 years, 
know, if you've known me, have been very frustrated by the way the Anglican Church of North America at times has planted churches. Because just because you want to be a priest and you like C.S. Lewis and you smoke a pipe does not make you an Anglican priest. <laughs> and we've got quite a bit of those in this diocese and they're struggling. Why? Because they're loopy and they smoke a pipe. And they just want to sit around and pray the Book of Common Prayer. But they don't have a heart for love the lost. They don't have a heart for expository preaching and getting it right. And so I've been commissioned by the bishop to make sure that the Cleveland Deanery gets it right. So no longer, and this is across the diocese in the ACNA, by the way, no longer can a person be a priest unless first... They've effectively and fruitfully run a mission-shaped community like our Avon Lake group. Okay, we're, those of you who are with the Avon Lake group, you know what we're trying to do. It's not just a Bible study. It's fellowship and it's mission together as we reach out to our friends where we live, work, and play. The only reason it's called the Avon Lake group is because that's where I live. All right? You're welcome to be there. All right? So we're meeting at the Sands tonight. We're continuing to walk through 1 John. And it's exciting, but this is the future of ministry, my friends. It's not hang up a shingle, call yourself St. Swithins in the Swamp Anglican Church and expect that the world will just love you because you're a delightful person. Because that's what's going on, quite frankly. And we're putting a stop to it and saying, no, let's do this right and in order, and we pray that it bears fruit. In other words, it's borrowing from the old Methodist model, of planting churches, as well as the African model today. And so I would encourage you uh, to come be part of our mission-shaped community because this is the future of Christianity here in America. Because just because we hang up a sign out front doesn't mean they're going to come and fill these seats. It's going to be us reaching out to them. So that's what my ministry among the deanery will be. Also, it will also be how do we use the bishop's time wisely there's no possible way the bishop can continue to go from Ontario to Petoskey, Michigan, to Lexington, Kentucky, to Christchurch each and every Sunday. It's, it's geographically not possible for a man who's 70 years old. I don't care if you're 56 years old. You know, it's just not bearing fruit for the diocese. So not every church will get a visit every year. I suspect we will because A, I'm the dean, and B, we're, the, we're a resource church of our diocese. But there's some of our fellowships and missions that won't be visited, so in order to bless them and be part of them, we're going to have a once-a-year confirmation of the deanery. So maybe you can't be here when our bishop comes. Well, you can be confirmed when the, the deanery-wide confirmation, which will be a retreat, a day away for the entire deanery. And we're going to seek your input. You know, if we gather the deanery together, all seven churches across our deanery, what do you want to learn? What do you want to talk about? What do you want to discuss with our bishop and other leaders of the deanery? It'll be, it'll be fun. It'll be exciting. So we're going to do some of that and just our, our common life and, yes, our outreach to this deanery. Wouldn't it be awesome to see a modern reformation in our day where all of a sudden we have our mission-shaped community grows to the point where its average Sunday attendance on Avon Lake Group comes over 30, so we have to divide back into Bay. And that Bay Group continues to grow and flourish 
and we plant a church in our former 468 outfit's backyard. You know? Hoorah. <laughs> and how about planting another? You know, and then we work with Lakewood. We combine one of our mission-shaped communities in Eastern Bay with a Western community in Lakewood, and we plant one in Rocky River. That's the vision that your bishop has, that I have, that we want to see the Holy Spirit move through us, but it's only going to happen as we're obedient unto him. So just come, be part of it, get in a group if you're not in one, and we're going to see the Lord move here, I think, in a mighty, mighty way. But it's Reformation Sunday. So I have a story to tell you. There's a story about what life was like in the Middle Ages and how God mightily used the first Protestant Archbishop of Thomas Cranmer. The year is 1520 and the scene is in Cambridge, England. And you see this little itty-bitty house as smoke rises from the fire and inside is young Sarah Smith. She's 31 but she looks 70. Her hair is gray and lank and filthy. She has three teeth left after 31 years. Her skin is dark from the smoke of a thousand cooking fires that she's prepared for her family. And the baggy gown that she wears is the only clothes she owns. And they're torn and worn out and threadbare. Tugging at her hem is little Michael. He's two. He's wearing a woolen smock. That's all he has. And on his skin are open and running sores. Michael is barefoot. And five of Sarah's eight children have died in infancy. Too undernourished and feeble to withstand normal childhood diseases. Now there's only Mark who's nine. Hannah who's five are left with Michael. Because death and disease have consumed Sarah's small family. Her husband Harry is the local blacksmith in that corner of Cambridge. He wearily bangs out some new shoe horses, horseshoes for a customer. And as the sun begins to lower in the horizon, he hears the chimes and the bells of Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge. Harry straightens himself up, crosses himself, puts his hammer down upon the anvil, puts out the fire, and trudges his way to evening prayer. After evening prayer, he goes home, wraps up his day's work, and the supper that awaits him is the same evening meal that Sarah has been able to prepare him a thousand times before, a bowl of coarse gruel. No wonder Harry can scarcely muster up the energy to limp to the shop in the morning, much less have a prosperous business. His hungry body is used up at 35, and he's not long for this world in 1520. And his daily bread barely keeps him alive. But on Sundays, the smiths doodily go to church, past a couple blocks down the timbered inns and shops to the parish church of Holy Trinity. Here is their weekly doorway into another world where they come to watch the miracle that brings down the body and blood of Jesus Christ upon the altar. The presence of God Almighty in this parish church fills Harry and Sarah with awe and fear, but it gives them very little comfort. They don't understand the service at all because it's in Latin. 
95% of the population doesn't speak Latin nor understand it, but the 5% who do are the university student community. And so, if their God is powerful and almighty, who is able to heal crippled body and restore diseased limbs, it is not clear to Harry and Sarah that this God regards them with any attitude but anger and scorn. Covering the walls of Holy Trinity Church are garish paintings of the Last Judgment in which ravenous demons are dragging down all the peasants in the painting, all the kings, all the monks, all the monarchs, all the warlords into the mouth of hell. No one escapes hell, not even in these paintings. Evidently, the human race is absolutely rotten without a single exception. Mind you, Father Henson, the parish priest, gives you a tiny loophole if you're willing to walk through it. If you do your very best to live a godly life, God will pour grace into your souls when you hear the Mass. And grace will help you still do more good works and build up the habit of virtue. Then on your dying day, if you're good enough... God may let you off the hook with no more than a few million years stuck in purgatory, suspended between heaven and earth, and heaven and hell. Now, the question does beg to be answered. What does doing your very best in the Christian life mean? Well, Father Henson is very specific about that. When you ask him, God wants you to do good works, like lighting candles in the back altar for the dead souls. Buying an indulgence that will let you or a loved one off of purgatory for a couple thousand, for a lot of money, a couple million years. Or if you want to take out extra hell insurance, you can make a pilgrimage to Rome. Sunday after Sunday, Harry and Sarah and the children trudge home after Mass, depressed, hopeless, facing another week of labor, hunger, and pain. Now across town on this Sunday, in the White Horse Inn, is a group having their shepherd's pie with a large tankard of ale. And on the table before them is the text from Romans that was read today in William Tyndale's English translation, which was illegal to read. All right? So they're reading it and they're studying it. Robert Barnes... William Tyndale himself, and a lesser-known scholar from the university named Thomas Cranmer. They've been dubbed Little Germany. You know, it, it, that was a derogatory term. They were Little Germans in Cambridge because they were, every week after the Mass, they would gather at the White Horse to discuss the texts that were preached. And they were becoming more and more with the understanding that the just shall live by faith. Or in other words, those who are righteous by faith shall live. Okay? Romans 3, 23 and 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. It's these men in the white horse. The Reformation began and spread 
throughout England and gave great hope not only to these scholars, but to Harry and Sarah and literally thousands and now billions of people. Thomas Cranmer was born into a family of lower gentry, but they had enough money, they had a little bit of property, and they could send young Thomas to Cambridge to go to school. So he went to Cambridge around uh, at the ripe age of like 17, 18. He would blame his marvelous, severe, and cruel schoolmaster for his lack of ability in his studies. You know, I wish I could get away with that, you know. Um, but he did. He said, yeah, I wasn't a good student because my teachers were so bad. And so he attended uh, Cambridge, and later he became a fellow around 1510 of Jesus College. In the university system, as you may know, there's 30 colleges per university. And so he was a, a, a fellow, a teacher at Jesus College. So he fell in love as he was a fellow to a woman named Joan, a local landlady at the Dolphin Inn where he stayed. And when he got married, he lost his fellowship because, you know, you're not allowed to be a fellow and be married. He had to be celibate. But Joan died in childbirth, and the baby died as well. And so Jesus College restored Cramer to his fellowship. So he then became an ordained priest and threw himself into academia and his studies and became an outstanding theologian, a man of immense, though not original, learning. He wasn't Luther. He wasn't Calvin. But in about 1520, he joined these scholars at the White Horse Inn and began to discuss the movement that had swept through Europe. And so his leanings toward reform would have merely been academic if it were not for the reason that some counselors came through Cambridge and asked him about his opinion about Henry VIII's desire to get a divorce from Catherine of Aragon. He wanted a divorce. He's an absolute scumbag of a person. King Henry VIII was an awful human being. But when you look at the sovereignty of God, it's a beautiful story. Okay, in many respects, that Henry wanted a divorce, and Thomas Cranmer told his counselors, What does Henry care about Rome? Go poll the princes of Europe, poll the academic scholars of England. And the counselors went back to the king and said, Hey, we found this guy who had this idea. And Henry VIII said, Good, go send him, and here's money to send him. So he wrote up an academic paper, went to Rome to appeal to the Pope. The Pope wouldn't hear him. So then he went to Germany, all around going to the princes of Europe, trying to buy them off, in other words, with this treasury from the king, so that he could get an annulment from Catherine of Aragon so he could marry Anne Boleyn, who he was already having an affair with. Okay? Those were the politics of this situation. And while he was in Germany, he met the great German reformer, Andreas Asiander, and he fell in love with his niece, Margaret. And so he became convinced that salvation was thoroughly by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. While he was in Germany, it was totally solidified at this point. And yet he was going around trying to win Germany's favor in the church, that they would oppose the Pope and just let the old boy have a divorce. 
Well, it's at this time, 1532, that the aged Archbishop of Canterbury died. And with the divorce question coming to a head, the position would have to be filled quickly. So guess who Henry VIII appointed to be the Archbishop of Canterbury? Thomas Cranmer. So his new chief advisor of ecclesiastical affairs was pursuing the divorce energetically to complicate matters. Anne Boleyn was pregnant. Stephen Gardner, the obvious candidate for the archbishopric, was, in a, 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 it was, a, was, was thoroughly Roman Catholic and was out of favor. And so Cranmer heard of his appointment and he balked at it. He didn't want it at all. But he was consecrated and instituted at Cammentary. He took the obligatory oath. The oath to be subject ultimately to the Pope. Although the day before he had signed a statement qualifying that oath, saying he was binding himself to do or not to do anything attempt against which would be contrary to God's law or against the majesty of the King of England. So with his priorities set, Cranmer proceeded to do what was expected of him. In May, he convened his court and declared the king's marriage of Catherine of Aragon void from the beginning. He then pronounced the marriage to Anne Boleyn, which had already been secretly taken place. And that would be the first of many decisions that made Cranmer seem servile to Henry VIII. He was a flawed human being, my friends. But Cranmer believed in royal... There was no idea of our individualism that we have today. You were under the sovereign, and his primary duty was to obey the king, God's chosen to lead the nation, unto death even. And so Cranmer was prepared to sacrifice nearly all doctrines but one. If the king were to order him to sin, he would disobey him. So time and time, personally, you know, so time and time again, Cramer was ordered to support religious practices, which he disapproved of, and yet he obeyed. So in 1536, he became convinced by rather dubious evidence that Anne had committed adultery. And he invalidated the marriage, and therefore he ruled that Henry's proposed marriage to Anne of Cleves, wife number three, was lawful. And when Henry sought a... Jane Seymour? Thanks, John. You know, and when Henry sought a divorce like six months later, Cranmer approved it on the grounds that the original divorce was unlawful. This just kept going and going and going. It was political web. But Cranmer was no lackey. Time and time again, Cranmer alone of all of Henry's advisors pleaded for the lives who fell out of royal favor. He pleaded for Sir Thomas More. He pleaded for the life of Anne Boleyn. He pleaded for John Fisher, people who had opposed him. Those are all stories for another day. But all this time, he was theologically thoroughly reformed in his theology that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone with a Catholic king. He believed that the celebration of the Lord's Supper was not a full transubstantiation, but rather a spiritual mystery, because all Jesus said was, this is my body. 
He couldn't find evidence for indulgences anywhere, or purgatory anywhere. So when King Henry VIII died in 1547 and his 11-year-old son came to reign. Can you imagine your king being 11 and had the authority to send you to war, man? <laughs> Thank God we live here today. But Cramer saw his, his opportunity here. So immediately he took the Catholic service and translated it into English so that people could at least understand that. And for the next three years, he made a thoroughly reformed theology book of common prayer that came out in 1552, and it was beautiful. The prayers that we pray, even in morning prayer, directly from him recovering the Hebrew synagogue worship. And he reformed the church. He created Bible reading plans, the Psalter reading, so that you would read the Psalter all in a month. If you couldn't read, you could go to your church and you would hear them read. You would hear the entire scripture read throughout the whole year. He orchestrated the 42 articles, which became the 39 articles. One of the great geniuses of the 39 articles he wrote was, he put it in the preface of the prayer book, as well as in the traditions of the prayer book. Of the traditions, that article says, if anything that we do in corporate worship on Sundays is a barrier to the culture, change it, because cultures change. You know, that was brilliant. You'd be surprised how many people have never read them so when you do make a change based on the culture that people upset, but the reality is the way we worship here in America is different than Australia and it's different than Africa and every province needs to craft their own way of doing ministry, right? And so the church was thoroughly reforming, but in 1553, Edward died of tuberculosis at the age of 16. For five years as he reigned, these reforms went all over the country. And the country was coming to faith in Jesus Christ alone, not on their own works. But upon his death, Lady Jane Grey was proclaimed queen and was deposed nine days later. And Henry's daughter, Mary, whom we know as Bloody Mary, you know, Tudor came to the throne. She was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon and a devout Catholic. She repealed with Parliament the, the acts of Henry VIII and Edward VI and reintroduced the heresy laws. Therefore, if you weren't a member of the, of the Catholic Church and you were pronouncing something opposed to the Catholic Church, you would be burned at the stake. They truly believed that being burned at the stake by searing you through the flames, you might be able to wear off a few million years in purgatory. They looked at it as something merciful. I don't think it's so. But Cramer, in the meantime, as well as all his reformers who were with him, over 500 priests, deacons, and lay people, both male and female, okay, over the next five years were burned at the stake in Oxford, England. Most of them were burned in Oxford. Chief among those in 1555 on October 16th was Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, the bishops of Rochester and Worcester. Hugh Latimer was the chaplain to Edward VI. As they were such good friends and partners in the gospel, they were ordered to be burned at the stake together. And while they were tied to the stake, Bishop Latimer turned to Nicholas Ridley and spoke out loud for the crowd to hear, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. 
For we shall this day in England light such a candle that by God's grace it shall never be put out. Well, a few months later in May, Thomas Cramer as an old man in his upper 60s, not, not in good health anymore, was asked to recant and put it in writing his loyalty to the Pope. And he caved. And he did. He wrote these words and they were sent out all over the kingdom. I, Thomas Cranmer, anathematize every heresy of Luther and Zwingli. I confess and believe in one holy Catholic visible church. I recognize as its supreme head upon the earth the Bishop of Rome, Pope and Vicar of Christ, to whom all the faithful are bound subject. That went out over the entire realm. Still, Queen Mary, Stephen Gardner, the new Archbishop of Canterbury, and Cardinal Pole believed Cranmer must be punished for all the havoc that he had wrecked across the realm. So they ordered him to be executed by burning at the stake. So on a rainy morning on March 21st in 1556, as the dark skies came down with fierce rain, he was escorted from his cell to St. Mary's Church. Normally these things were done outside, but because of the rain, they brought it inside the church where there was a scaffold built for such executions. And he was forced to read his recantation that he had written. Instead, he pulled out of his shirt another piece of paper. And he said, says these words. I come to the great thing that troubles my conscience more than any other thing that I've ever done in my entire life. That which putting abroad of writings contrary to the truth, which I here now renounce and refuse as things written with my head contrary to the truth which I hold in my heart. And I wrote them out of fear of death and to save my life if it may be. And that is, all such bills which I have written and signed with my own hand since my degradation, wherein I have written many things untrue. For as much as my hand offended in writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall first be punished, for if I may come to the fire, it shall be first to be burned. And as for the Pope, I refuse him, as Christ's enemy and Antichrist, with all his false doctrine. And as for the sacraments, they didn't let that, they stopped them right there. And then, as you read about this in Ashley commentary, it feels Monty Python-ish. Because Mary had brought over the Spanish friars from the Inquisition time. They were really good at this. And so they came, and this old 68-year-old man, dressed in cassock and surplice, started to run to the pyre, which was a 15-minute walk. I've timed it in Oxford. I've been there. It's a 15-minute walk for a 40-year-old man, you know? And as the Spanish friars were asking him to repent, asking him to repent, they were, they were throwing holy water on him, you know, following around, and they couldn't keep up with him. They say he ran like 15 yards ahead of him, so all these young guys that are in their 20s are throwing water at him, trying to get him to repent and recant. When he got to the pyre, he clasped the hands of his friends, and he begged them for well. 
He was bound to the stake with a steel band around his waist so he couldn't get away. And the fire was kindled at his feet and the flame quickly leapt up. And he stretched out his hand as it burned to a stump for all to see. He stood straight as long as he could, ringed in fire, and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and then he collapsed. Rain continued to fall softly and gently cleansed his ashes. Why do I share that with you? That's awful. My friends, I share this with you because when it truly mattered, he stood firm in the faith. This reformation continued because Mary didn't reign long. And when Elizabeth came to the throne, it restarted. And it matters because it's good news that Cranmer discovered. It's good news that you don't have to get your act together to have a relationship with God. That Jesus has done that for each and every one of us upon the cross. And by placing your trust in him, you have life eternal and life abundant in this life. That you can be assured of your salvation. You don't have to go back and light a candle or get an indulgence. You don't find these in the scriptures. They're not there. The Reformation happened for a reason, and some of those reasons still exist. You can be sure of your salvation. 1 John 5, 11, and 12, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. Do you believe it? You have eternal life. Why? Because of what He's done on the cross, not because of anything we have done. That's good news. And of course it swept through to people like Harry and Sarah. And today, if you walk into Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, it is alive, thriving. Because 200 years later, a young man named Charles Simeon, although he was hated by the congregation, they threw tomatoes at him for 20 years broke open. And since that time, Holy Trinity is the church to go to in Cambridge, England. If you're ever in Cambridge, do yourself a favor and go. All the other churches around them are kind of cold and dark. You walk in there, there's actual heat. All right? It's warm. It's friendly. Someone's there to greet you and just glad because the gospel is being preached there faithfully to this day. And this thing has spread because Kramer had no idea about the British Empire in 1556. He had no idea that there would come a day where the flag, the sun would never set on the British flag. Because you know what happened is as the British Empire expanded, they took their missionaries with them. And some of them were really good ones, by the way, okay? And as the gospel went all over the world, although I'm not a big fan of colonialism as an American, I'm grateful they came to America, and I'm grateful that we can stand on his shoulders today, that we too believe that our salvation is by faith through Jesus Christ alone, not on my works, and that we are a people just like they were, and just like the Methodists were, and just like Simeon's crew was, and just like the, the English Puritans that were Anglicans were. 
We were devoted to the scriptures, devoted to prayer, devoted to fellowship, devoted to this time on Sunday mornings, devoted to evangelism, devoted to repentance, devoted to doing ministry. That's what the Reformation brought back because all the Reformation was trying to do, all the English reformers and German reformers trying to do is get back to the Bible. What does it mean to live as a Christian in their day? So what does it mean to live in a Christian in our day? And we are here today, brothers and sisters, praying some of the exact same prayers that this man wrote. We do this collectively to keep us Christ-centered, cross-focused people. And we stand on his, but all the men and women who laid down their lives, all the people in England who got the heck out of there and went to Geneva for about 20 years. Who was in Geneva? John Calvin. All right? It's a fascinating time of history. I encourage you to study it. And they came back from England years later. And the point is, may the Holy Spirit empower us in these truth of gospel reforms that we might see through our obedience to it a modern reformation. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you once again for this day and that we are a reformational church and we love you. And we love our heroes. We thank you for them. And we look forward that one day we will see them. And we thank you for, for a normal guy like Thomas Cranmer who, who appeared to compromise at times. Just like we've compromised at times. And he's real. And yet when it really mattered, he stood firm for you. Lord, may we stand firm today in our day. May we love our neighbors when we reach opposition, may we just be gentle and loving and humble and articulate so that we may proclaim the good news to our neighbors where we live, work, and play. And we would see that modern reformation backslash revival. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.